Thanks so much for joining us today. Happy reunions. My name is Cecilia McGargy, and I am a project manager in the Lifetime Learning Group in the Office of Engagement. And on behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, I want to welcome you this weekend, and thanks for coming to our program today. Before we get started, if you can silence your cell phones, that would be great. And the second thing I'll mention now, which is for the Q&A portion of our program, we are podcasting this, so if you could wait till the microphone comes over to you, because we want that question captured uh, in the audio as well. So just hold off till I get over to you with a mic. Althea and I will be walking around with microphones. Um, so first, I'd like to introduce Paul Friedman, who is our moderator for, for today. Paul Friedman is Associate Professor and Associate Department Chair in the Department of Politics. He teaches courses in media, campaigns, and elections, research methods, and the politics of food. Friedman serves as the university, on the University Sustainability Committee and on the Sustainable Food Task Force. He is a founding member of the UVA Food Collaborative and is on the steering committee of the statewide Virginia Sustainable Food Coalition. Friedman is academic director of the Morbin Summer Institute and serves on the boards of the City Schoolyard Garden and the Jefferson Institute. He is a recipient of the University of Virginia Alumni Board of Trustees Teaching Award and served as the first Edward L. Ayers Advising Fellow. Since the year 2000, he has been an election analyst for ABC News in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Paul Friedman. Thank you, uh, Cecilia, and I want to thank Althea Brooks and her staff and everybody for uh, putting this event together. I want to thank all of you for coming out to uh, hear about, think about, talk a little bit about the politics of food, even uh, on such a beautiful, sunny reunions day as today. So uh, we've got a lot of ground uh, to cover, and by we, I mean uh, me and my co-panelists, um, Anna Maria Sigariz and Tanya Denklakob, and I'm very proud of this, so you're going to have to watch it a couple of times. Um, <laughs> food fight. Yeah, that's the. Uh, all right. Um, Anna Maria Sigariz is professor in the School of Medicine and in Public Health Sciences. Her research focuses on the first 1,000 days of life. She focuses on the influence of maternal weight status and dietary patterns. Her work revolves around and looks in detail at questions of uh, maternal and child nutrition. And as you will hear from uh, Anna Maria, this, is, uh, this goes to the heart of her work with the Federal uh, nutri uh, uh, Nutrition Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee. Um, Tanya Denklakob is the director of the Institute uh, for environmental negotiation. Tanya also teaches in the um, uh, Department of Planning in the School of Architecture. Uh, and Tanya is the author of Reclaiming Our Food, an incredible and beautiful book telling uh, stories of people who are doing just that, reclaiming their food uh, and in the process becoming politically empowered. And Tanya is going to share uh, a story about that. Um, I want to begin by just thinking a little bit about food as a political issue, and here I'm going to take a step back and shift to this, uh, this microphone. Um, for many of the people in this room, this is obvious, right? We're familiar with the ways in which food is, uh, is political, but for those of us who've been doing work in this area, have been teaching classes or doing research around uh, food politics, this was a, a, a question that we encountered. What do you mean the politics of food? Does food vote? In what way is food political? And I think 
um, what we see when we look at food fights is the very essence of, of politics. Uh, we see conflicts over political values. We see questions of power and powerlessness. Uh, and we have winners and losers. And uh, we see this uh, with respect to environmental sustainability. I want to say a few words about the politics of food and the health of the planet. We see this as well when it comes to public health, and Anna Maria Sigaris will be talking about the politics of food around the issue of, uh, of public health and uh, dietary guidelines, recommendations from the federal government. And so we've got a, a global story, a national story, and then uh, Tanya uh, will be talking a bit about food justice and food security. This is something that can refer to uh, how we treat workers in the system, everything from minimum wage to workplace safety uh, and the conditions under which the people who produce, distribute, make, and serve our food uh, work, but also questions of food security by which we generally mean access to healthy and affordable food by all members of society. And Tanya will share a story from her book about uh, political empowerment in a community around precisely these issues. I want to think about, uh, as I said, uh, food and environmental sustainability. Um, and again, this is going to be something that for many people is obvious. You're familiar with this. Uh, very quickly, what we eat matters for the kind of planet that we inhabit and the health of that planet. Um, agriculture in this country represents, as of 2015, 9% uh, of greenhouse gas emissions. Now, in other places, uh, in other countries, uh, that figure might be, it is much higher. Um, globally, it's, uh, it's at least double this, right? And some estimates say 20, 21% or more uh, of all greenhouse gas emissions um, are, from, are from agriculture. And the other thing that we, that we know is that when it comes to the food we eat, the environmental footprint varies. Right? And it varies in ways that uh, uh, we might expect. Uh, this, is, uh, this graph represents the uh, carbon equivalence, right? so a metric looking at the greenhouse gas emissions from production of a number of different kinds of foods. And this analysis breaks it up in, uh, uh, in, into emissions from the production uh, on the farm and then emissions post-production. Um, but what you see is a story that's familiar, lentils, tomatoes, tofu, broccoli, yogurt, nuts, peanut butter, rice, have a relatively small footprint when it comes to greenhouse gas emissions. Um, cheese, lamb, and beef, that's where the action is, right? Particularly lamb and beef, which uh, the production of which leads to a great deal of greenhouse gas uh, production. Now, that is simply something to know. That does not in and of itself dictate anything, right? Does it mean we need to stop eating meat and cheese? To some people, right? That's a vegan response. And there are people who make decisions and argue for making policy based on that response. But it's certainly not the only response. And so what I want to say is how we respond to this, that's a question for politics. Now, it's not just um, uh, the production of greenhouse gases that is at issue. Um, we also want to think about water. Here's California as of this week. 
it looks pretty good with respect to uh, the absence of drought. But on election day it, uh, uh, 2016, it looked uh, much worse. And as you can see, significant parts of the state were experiencing uh, extreme or exceptional drought. And in 2014, it was even worse. This was a crisis, right? California was devastated by a lack of water. Those of you from California who were there during this period remember what, what, what that was like, what it meant. And importantly, about 80% of California's water goes to agriculture because California produces what we eat, right? It is the, not just the bread basket, it is the basket, right, of, uh, of American food production. And the LA Times produced a really fantastic water footprint calculator to help give a sense of how much water was involved in the production of uh, different sorts of food. So the analysis here tracks what we just looked at. Just as our food choices and as our food-related policy has different implications for the production of greenhouse gases, the same is true with respect to water. Carrots takes about a gallon, 0.93 gallons of water uh, to produce an ounce of carrots. Similarly, tomatoes, and California grows almost, well, 91% of, uh, of uh, tomatoes produced in this country were from California. 0.95 gallons of water needed to produce an ounce of tomatoes. Broccoli, right, There's, that's big, right? Now, this isn't surprising. We know that plants need water to grow, right? But what's in interesting is the disparity. Avocados, nine gallons of water. Well worth it, in my opinion, but nine gallons of water, right? Um, asparagus, 20 gallons of water. Milk, it takes five and a half gallons of water to produce an ounce of milk. How is that possible? Are cows that thirsty? No, but cows eat grass and grain, or they are fed grain, and it takes a lot of water to produce the food that the cows need to make the milk that goes on our plate. Interestingly, beer, right? my students always point this out, right? It's actually much better for the water footprint to drink uh, an ounce of beer uh, than an ounce of milk. All right, chicken, 16.6 gallons of water to produce <coughs> an, uh, an ounce of chicken. Pork, 41 gallons. Lamb, 85 gallons of water to produce an ounce of lamb. Now that's nothing. Beef, 106 gallons of water to produce, produce one ounce of beef. So uh, eight ounce, an eight ounce steak, that's 850 gallons of water. This plate um, is 1,100 gallons of water, takes 1,100 gallons of water. Okay, so when we talk about the politics of food, right, our first stop and our first stop today is thinking about the health of the planet, the health of the environment, the implications for environmental sustainability of different food choices. How we respond to this in an era of climate change, in an era of uh, environmental um, constraint, is a question for policy and politics. So now I want to turn things over to Anna Maria Sigaris, who will talk about not the health of the planet, but the health of us, public health and uh, the politics of nutrition guidelines.
Paul always makes it hard for me to follow after him, but I have to say he actually set me up really nicely for, for the next couple of slides that um, I'll be showing you. So I want to tell you a little bit about my experience of being part of the, the process of making dietary guidelines in the United States. I had the opportunity to serve on the 2015 Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee for the federal government, and that was a two-year appointment, as you'll see. Um, so the Dietary Guidelines for Americans, how many of you have seen the Dietary Guidelines for Americans? Raise your hand. Uh, just about everybody, but some people are missing it. How many of you recognize the food plate? Uh, a little bit more. How about the food pyramid? Do you remember the food pyramid? Yeah, okay. Well, the food plate is what is now considered the new sort of translational message to the lay public of the dietary guidelines, okay? Um, the food pyramid was useful to a certain degree, and then we decided, you know, people are still eating way too much food. Let us show them the plate, okay? So the dietary guidelines for Americans um, are food-based recommendations that come out every five years from the federal government. It's um, made there to apply to individuals from the ages on two on up. One of the new things that's going to be coming out is in 2020, they're going to apply to infants. So that we're actually going to move it all the way down to show that everybody needs to be eating a healthy diet. Um, it is for the prevention of chronic disease, not treatment of disease, but that has a little bit of a caveat given the fact that two-thirds of Americans are either overweight or obese. Okay? And the target audience is for policymakers, nutrition educators, and health professionals. So it gets used in so many different fashions, okay? How many of you have kids who have um, gone to schools and eaten the school breakfast or school lunch programs? Yes, right? Okay, those have to follow the Dietary Guidelines for Americans. Um, as I said, released every five years. Why is it released every five years? Our science evolves over time, and I'm going to be talking about this a little bit more because um, it's one of the controversies that the news loves to portray about the nutrition field that we don't know what we're talking about. But the reality is our science grows, and at the same point in time, what we learned about a long, long time ago when they used to tell us, eat an apple a day to keep the doctor away, is still kind of true, okay? But we, now we can get down to a little bit more specifics. Um, and it's released by the um, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as well as by um, the USDA Department of Agriculture. So these dietary guidelines take about three years to develop. So you can imagine, it gets released every five years, that means there's two years of a hiatus, and then we start looking at how to formulate the next set of guidelines. And um, a committee comes together, there's about 17 of us that get appointed by the Department of Health and Human Services and USDA. We get nominated from our different professional societies and institutes <coughs> of higher education. We come together, we review the science on what are the best things for us to be consuming. And I'm going to share a little bit about that science with you. Um, and then we actually debate in public about what the science is telling us. And we develop recommendations based on the science. That report, which this time in 2015, it was 500 pages, gets passed, yes, ugh, that's right, ugh, who reads it? Well, the government reads it, right? So it gets passed over to the government, 
And then um, colleagues, and I say colleagues because they're nutritionists, they're educators in the Department of Health and Human Services in the USDA, take into consideration what science is telling us, what politics wants, what the food industry wants, and puts together what we call as the dietary guidelines, which is the policy. And I'm going to be able to share with you a couple examples of where sometimes things don't happen exactly the way we might want them to, okay? So, so what did this committee find, okay? So I think everybody knows that right now in the United States, we have a really high prevalence of um, chronic diseases, okay? Like I mentioned, two-thirds of Americans are either overweight or obese. And in order to resolve this issue, we can't put a Band-Aid on it anymore. We really need to think about prevention. It's much easier to prevent than to cure some of these diseases, okay? So that's what we need to do. And when we look at the diets of Americans, based on looking at some nationally represented surveys that exist in America, we can actually evaluate that we're eating diets that are very low in vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. Yet, we have diets that are very high in sodium, sugar, added sugars, fats, and refined grains, overall total calories. We're consuming way too many total calories. And so we need to really be able to apply the best methods that we possibly can to get this information translated so that everyday consumers can understand how they need to eat, okay? And also to get the food industry to respond to produce for us healthier foods. What we're really striving with these dietary guidelines is to make healthy food the default choice for everybody in the United States and globally, in fact, okay? So I'm going to give you three examples of some hot issues that came out of our 2015 um, Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report. And they relate to fats, red and processed meats, and food sustainability. And this is where I'm very grateful for some of Paul's slides that he just shared with you because I think you'll begin to understand why this committee, for the first time, looked at food sustainability as part of the dietary guidelines. Okay, fats. All right, so fats, the new health paradigm. In fact, we've been talking about fats in the nutrition field for a very, very, very long period of time, right? How many of you can remember when they used to tell you to watch how many eggs you were eating per day, right? Okay, watch how many eggs you're eating per day. Um, we also were out there, you know, with what we knew from the science that we were telling people not to eat a whole lot of fat, right? Okay. Well, this is where our science has evolved, okay? So one of the things that we have now learned over time is that it's not total fat that really matters. It's not how much fat you eat overall. It's the type of fat that matters. There's different types of fats, right? Saturated fats, monosaturated fats, polyunsaturated fats, okay? Saturated fats are what we see in marbled meats. It's butter, it's lard, okay, those. You have your polyunsaturated fats, which are a lot of your oils. Avocado is an example of a monosaturated fat, okay? So we now know fats, specific fats, are important, okay? We know that cholesterol 
is not as important as we thought, okay, for three different reasons. One, a lot of Americans now are not consuming way too much cholesterol. They really have shifted on what they're consuming. Two, if you're genetically, if you have high cholesterol levels, you're probably genetically dispositioned to have high cholesterol levels. And we can control that much better through drugs with statins as opposed to changing your diet, okay? And so for those reasons, we now know we don't really have to send that many messages about cholesterol, okay? So what did the science tell us? Well, the science at this particular point in time tells us that replacing saturated fat with unsaturated fat, especially the PUFAs, which are the oils, okay, like olive oil and your vegetable oils, helps reduce our lipodensity lipid um, cholesterols and our overall cardiovascular disease. So how many of you have heard about the Mediterranean diets, right, and the olive oil that comes with that, the fats that come from nuts, all right? Those are healthy fats, and they are what's helping us reduce our cardiovascular risk factors, okay? We also know that there's strong evidence that replacing saturated fat with overall carbohydrates really does not lower our cardiovascular disease risk. How many of you remember snack wells? <laughs> right, snack wells, right? They were there as a response to the food industry to literally lower the fat content, but they increased the amount of refined sugars in there, okay? First of all, nobody really liked them, okay? And then second of all, they really didn't help us at all, okay? And then the third evidence, we don't know very much about monounsaturated fats. We're wanting to learn more. And that's where I bet you in 2020 we're going to know a little bit more about how monounsaturated fats really help to contribute to decreased risk of different types of diseases, okay? Now, the second... Um, um, piece of evidence from the dietary guidelines that I'll talk about um, how it got misconstrued in the, in, um, the media is related to um, dietary patterns and meats, red meats and red processed meats. So one of the things that the committee did was instead of looking at individual foods and how they were related to disease risk, we basically, because our field has grown once again, realized that all of us eat a certain type of dietary pattern. Some people might consider themselves vegetarians. Some people might consider themselves following the Mediterranean diet. Some people might say, well, in fact, I am, what's, what do you call yourself? You are a fishitarian, what, what's the word for it? Pescatarian, right? Okay, so we all follow these different types of dietary patterns in, in terms of the types of foods that we eat, okay? And how we eat these foods basically act synergistically. All right? They don't act individually. They act in the combination to make us what we are. And when we review the literature to sort of look to see what dietary patterns came up as being important in reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease or cancers or other types of diseases like type 2 diabetes, um, overweight and obesity, what we basically found was that Dietary patterns that are high in fruits and vegetables, whole grains, low-fat dairy, seafood legumes, and nuts, moderate in alcohol consumption, lower in red and processed meats, 
low in added sugars, and low in refined grains were overall the best dietary patterns that are associated with less chronic disease. Can you ask a question when we are all together? Sure. Perfect. Okay. So remember, what this slide says and what is in our report says lower in red and processed meats. Okay. The committee also, and we'll talk about this a little bit more, really showed the strong association between healthy dietary patterns and how they are causally related to chronic diseases. And this was through what we consider in epidemiology randomized trials. Okay, so it was literally you consume this way in terms of how you're eating, and this is what we see happen. Okay. And one of the things that I want to emphasize is we were talking about lower red and processed meats. And we ended up taking what we determined as being um, different types of dietary patterns that would meet the criteria of those particular contributions of foods that we just saw. And we called it a healthy U.S. style, which is just following the, the healthy um, eating index, which is a, a tool that we use. Um, or being vegetarian or, or eating the healthy Mediterranean style. I just want to show you how much meat is still in these particular food patterns, okay? You can see this is on a weekly basis, okay? And it's six and a half ounces or five and a half ounces if um, you're eating according to the healthy eating index in the United States. There's still a lot of meat there, okay? Doesn't mean we're eliminating meat whatsoever. And in fact, those dietary patterns are also associated with one and a half to two times the amount of protein we need in our diets, okay? And that's important because you'll see, you'll begin to understand why we were a little bit frustrated with some of the food industry and how they attacked us. The other thing was on sustainable diets that Paul brought out, that compared to the current U.S. diet, what the committee was able to see through its looking at the science is that, like Paul presented, plant-based foods um, and lowering calories in animal-based foods is more health-promoting and is associated with a less environmental impact, okay? So what you have is healthy foods that are associated with less chronic disease, and then you have the same foods that are associated with less environmental impact, okay? So they kind of go hand-in-hand. Um, and that's why the committee basically said that a diet that is more environmental sustainability than the U.S. average can be achieved, okay, if we wanted to emphasize that in this country, all right? Well, what did the media pick up when our report was released, okay? So, this was um, in the news. The latest turnabout took place last month, and of course this is back in 2015, when the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee declared that cholesterol and certain fats, once considered a bane of healthy diets, aren't so bad after all, okay? So they basically misconstrued what we said about fats, all right, and basically took it to the other side. Why do they do that? Well, if they're controversial, it's newsworthy, okay? They want to grab your attention, and by grabbing your attention, sometimes what they end up doing is creating more confusion than actual clarity in what the science says, okay? Then they said, you know, will Obama's ag chief wimpify the 2015 dietary guidelines to please big meat? Because what was the big meat? What was the, the North American Meat Institute saying? Okay, these are a big lobbying group, big, big lobbying group, 
They basically were saying, look, Americans are eating less red meat. Look at the graph here, okay? This is the total amount of meat. This is how much is coming from red meat, how much is coming from poultry. Clearly, we must be doing something because Americans aren't eating enough meat, right? They're not eating enough meat. And so they basically said, you know, we don't ha we're not based on science. The dietary guidelines review was not based on science. Okay? Once again, counting doubt, casting doubt, confusion to the American consumer. All right? And basically made that ag chief sit there and say, oh, okay, maybe to help appease my constituents, you know, I need to send the message that, oh, those you know, 17-member board of the dietary guidelines, they're like third, you know, three-year-olds. They don't know how to color inside the lines. They've gone beyond their boundaries of what we told them to do. They were only supposed to be talking about food and nutrients, never mind food sustainability, okay? You're not supposed to be talking about food sustainability. So that's the criticism that we ended up getting. Let's see if this works. And they actually um, had a policy writer on one of the bills that basically told the USDA and Department of Health and Human Services that they could not consider anything in our report that wasn't related to food and nutrients. Okay, this got snuck in. Food politics. So what came out in the dietary guidelines? Well, they did say what a healthy diet was. Okay, they talk about a variety of vegetables from all the food groups, fruits, especially whole, um, whole fruits, grains, and they talked about a variety of protein foods. Now, there is a footnote in the policy that says for young men, young adolescent males, okay, they're consuming way too much red meats and processed meats. They really need to be targeted. They didn't say it for everybody. They said it for young adolescent males, which happens to be true. They are the highest consumers of red and processed meats. Okay. They did talk about eating less saturated fats and trans fats, okay? But they also, um, that's, that's that. But they also put, talked about cholesterol. When we didn't mention cholesterol all, because we knew cholesterol was an issue, but they felt compelled to mention cholesterol, okay? So they did mention cholesterol, which is shown there. And so those are three examples of how politics gets into the dietary guidelines. There are a couple of more, but I really wanted to emphasize three sort of nice, clear ones. Um, and then I'm going to pass the baton over to Tanya, and we're going to take questions at the end. Okay? Thank you. All right. So um, I'm Tanya, and wow, look at all the people that came in. That's awesome. Um, food rocks. So I'm going to take this issue of food politics and the health of um, and how it affects how it affects our nation, how it affects us environmentally, how it affects us individually, and I want to talk about it at a community level. And so I want to first start by saying how many here Try to buy local food in some form. Okay, so that's like three quarters of this group. And how many of you are 
maybe part of a CSA, a consumer-supported agriculture. Okay, so a small portion. How many are looking for local in your local grocery stores? That's like three quarters. So what's really interesting, if I had asked this question just 15 years ago, the answer in this room would have probably been two or three hands because there was nothing in the grocery store that was local. In fact, my students in 2006, in the first food planning class here, did our first assessment of the Charlottesville's, uh, Charlottesville Regional Food System. And one of the astonishing things that they couldn't believe was all of the Nelson County apples. They went west to get graded and packed and they never came back. Who knew where they went? It went into sort of the black apple hole, right? And, and so you couldn't find local apples, even though we are an apple region, you couldn't find them here. Now you can find them in the Giant occasionally has them, the Whole Foods certainly has them, that was a battle, um, and I think the Kroger also has them. And so, so we now, you're able, and of course, I will say the Walmart has also gone local. That's a whole other political discussion that some people feel that's not such a great thing. From my perspective around food justice, that ain't so bad because it is making, it is making organic. They have both organic and local foods, although their definition of local is very controversial. Um, more available at lower cost, right? So anyway, you all are part of the food movement. You may not have thought of yourselves that way, but you are because it is coming from the bottom up that this system is being forced to change. Walmart didn't change because it just suddenly woke up one morning and said, oh, I think this is a good idea. It's because they were polling their customers and they found that customers, regardless of income, actually, if they had a choice and could afford it, would prefer organic, which was a light bulb and, and goes against what most people think, right? But that's, that's why these big corporations are really taking seriously what's coming from below, from you, part of the food movement. So I want to talk about community health in, in this food politics puzzle. And I like to think about food justice as in, in some very simple ways, which is, is there healthy, nutritious food there? Is it, is it there? Can I get there? So the there could be your corner store, it could be your grocery store, it could be a community garden, it could be wherever the there is that you want to find food, is it there? Can I get there? We found that, for example, with people without lots of, without a car in this community, that it often took two to three bus changes and about an hour to get to a grocery store across town from some of our neighborhoods. That's hard to get there. That's not what we would call an easy trip. And it's hard to carry that back on the bus, right? So is it there? Can I get there? And once I get there, can I afford it? So, and what we've found is, as you know, the outer aisles are generally considered to be the healthier types of food with the fresh vegetables and um, produce, and, and then they also have the eggs and the milk. And, 
And the inner aisles are where you see all of the refined and processed foods that Anna Maria was talking about. And so people who can't, we've, we've done experiments, uh, grocery shopping carts where you take the average $50 uh, uh, person per week for food, which for many of us actually may be low, and we said, what can we buy locally? And we found that we can, and what can we buy to maximize calories, right? Which is often the, 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 the quandary that many parents, especially single parents maybe, are facing is how can I maximize the calories coming into my home on the limited budget that I have? And so um, for most of us, the answer to these questions are, yes, it's there, I can get there, and I can afford it. And, but for most of us in the communities that we come from, there's pockets of neighborhoods for whom the answer is no to all three. And that is driving them to eat the other kinds of foods in the center aisles that are not healthy and nutritious. So I'm going to tell you a story. Um, I'm, I'm going to be the storyteller here of a community where the answer to all three questions was no and how it was transformed to a yes. And I want to start also with a question. As I've said, is it there? Can I get there? And can I afford it once I get there? Well, what's the ultimate then in food justice? There's one more. What's the ultimate? Think about what would be the ultimate form of food justice? And this community actually achieved it. And I'll, I'll, get, I'll get us there. So um, how many of you might be living in the Northwest? Oregon? Washington? OK. So this is uh, more, more, um, more locally, less, less so far away. There's this group in, it's a social services program, nonprofit, Janus Youth Programs. It is the largest um, nonprofit serving teens, runaway, homeless, they serve 6,000 some teens and youth um, in both Oregon and Washington State. And you might say, well, how the heck does a runaway and homeless teen program get involved in the food movement? Well, the executive director told me it was like, go figure. It was like a bombshell in their world. They had never intended it. It just happened. And it happened in the following way. Is it started with one of their um, teen youth homes. And there was a woman who was a social psychologist who said, you know, I think a little raised bed garden would really be therapeutic for these the girls that were in this home. And so they had a parking lot um, behind the home, and they put a raised bed on top of it, and they found really pretty, pretty interesting results that, that the young women, um, the teen girls, were really finding it soothing and all of the benefits that you might imagine. Another, or another um, community, now this, I happen to be there in winter, so it looks kind of grungy, but it's actually a beautiful place in summer, a place called uh, Village Gardens, which is one of the low-income housing um, neighborhoods in, in Portland. They took note of this. It was a single raised bed, from what I understand, you know, probably about the size of that table. 
So we're talking about seeds planted having huge impacts. So they came to um, Janice Youth and they said, you know, we think we could use something here. Is we have a situation where we have gangs, we have vandalism, we have lots of drug trafficking, and we have lots of hunger in this community. And it was what I would call a shut-in community. There was no neighborhood uh, communication or networks, per se. It was a very scared, fear-ridden fear community. And they said, we would really like, could you help us? And, and what happened was the um, gardener, the woman who had the idea of this garden, said, I'll do that, but it's going to be only if it comes from within. We're not going to impose anything. And that's one of the key lessons, is that this happens and this works only when it is not imposed, when it comes from below, when the people are actually asked, like, where do you want it? What do you want to do? What would be important to you? And they found and they, they decided that this plot, it's fairly small, probably um, not, it's a little bit bigger than this room, but not a heck of a lot bigger than this room, maybe one and a half times the size of this room. And they put in a garden. And because that's what the residents, when they finally were pulled together, that's what they said. They wanted it here, and, and they decided what they wanted to grow. Within six months, the police reports showed that the call-ins were dropping significantly. They found that people started coming out of their doors and talking and gathering in this garden. They found that people started picking up the litter because it was litter-ridden. They found that people spontaneously wanted to start planting flowers in front of their entryways. And what was happening was what we call civic capacity, right? These, these academic terms for, hey, a community is growing and forming. And it was because of a garden. And they suddenly were finding that they also had food. Many of the people in this community, African-American but also refugees, were were not able to really put enough food on their table, but now they were able to put things up, they were able to grow things. One of the big eye-openers for me in going around and looking at what was happening in our food movement was learning that people who may be so stressed with two jobs, three jobs, single parenting, trying to take care of just day-to-day -day living, you'd think, how the heck do they want to go into a garden? When do they have time, right? Well, the answer was time and again across this country was that they welcomed it. It actually was a way of connecting to others in the community, a way of connecting with their surrounding, their earth, and getting grounded. They were finding solace, and they were finding inspiration in this. And so one of the things that happened from here was that another community was being formed. Uh, Hope Six, anybody know what a Hope Six community is? It's really kind of an interesting, strange, um, what I would call an engineered, socially engineered community, where they take an existing low-income community, and it's actually being discussed here in, our, in Charlottesville, 
and has some very controversial elements to it. And they say, we're going to take this low housing community and we are going to socially engineer it so it's mixed use, mixed income, and, um, and people have, have access to schools and food and all kinds of things. And they said, you know, we really love what happened over in Village Gardens. Could you please come and help? So now it's like starting to grow. And what happened was amazing, is Village Gardens, the first place, said, you know, we don't want to go and set up a garden there. What we really want to do is we want to create a leadership program for the people in this other community. And, they, and so they put together a leadership training program. And out of that leadership training program came the next garden in, in that community. And what I, what, when I visited, I met, I met some of their leaders. This is, again, in winter, and they're still growing. This is Agnes Sola, and she is a refugee. She came from... Um, um, Nigeria, and she was very proud of her, her form of growing organic raised beds because it's very different than anything we would, would know. But she's helped others there. And, um, and then we have, we have um, other children. We have, this is a woman who's a single parent and who said that working in this garden as the volunteer and one of the leaders who had been trained as one of the leaders is what built her resume so that she actually, after two years of working in the garden, was finally able to get a job and um, built her, her job skills. And then here we have Isa Itaba Osongola, who was a trained um, social worker with a master's from um, Rwanda and had worked in the refugee camps um, for several years and then had landed in Oregon and found himself very marginalized, unable to use his degree, unable to do anything, and until this gardening project, which had come from the bottom up. And, and as a leader, as an emerging leader in this project, he, um, the week before I arrived, had gotten a full-time job as community organizer for the garden. So it's empowering, it's building skills, it's putting food on the table. Food is no, is food there? Yes. Can I get there? Yes, it's in the community. Can I afford it? Yes, they are growing food not only for themselves but for others within their community. And there's two other stories associated with this. Why are they so happy? They are so ecstatic. The day I was there is they were showing me this corner store. This garden was so incredibly empowering and exciting and energizing that the, or, that the leadership of the community said, we are going to give you a corner store that you are going to manage and run, and you're going to hire people from within the community to run it, and so there's green jobs, and in the back, you're going to have a flash freezing unit, which a lot of people in this community would love, and, you know, freezer and a canning, 
and a professional canning so that you can actually brand and create whatever it is, whether it's the barbecue sauce or the salsa or whatever it is that you want to brand from your garden and you can sell it. And they are still doing this. This is, this is they were, when I was there, there was a group around a table doing strategic planning. You can see they're looking at finances, store layout, stocking, marketing, staffing. They are in the process of organizing their corner store. Is it there? Yes. Can I get there? Yes. Can I afford it? Yes. Last question in food justice. What's the most important thing in food justice is do I have a say? Do I have a say? And this is, we go from a beginning, this is one of the early community organizers, Tara Amber, and um, from the original garden at Village Gardens, and we go to this, which just blew my mind, right? This is what, in the next garden over, they put together, and I'm going to read it, because I, and I might get emotional, because every time I read this, it blows my mind. We, the Seeds of Harmony Garden Committee, committee through the sharing of dreams and ideas have helped this garden come into being. In the winter and spring of 2006, we, the community, came together frequently to create and shape a hands-on hands, hands-on hands community garden. We hope this garden will be bountiful with lots of people sharing their cultures, ideas, and this is what blows me away. And love, who talks about love? <laughs> and love, and that it will bring all the members of this community together. So they are now talking about this is a form of empowerment that had never been imagined, never. And they are, this is what is part of reclaiming our food, is reclaiming our democratic values of choice and influence. The last piece that I want to put in, into place for you that, I mean, this, this project, all the ones in the country, still boggles my mind, you can tell, is that they also then said one of the needs that arose from their leadership um, weekly meetings is we need to do something for our teen youth. And they developed one of the very first teen-led, teen-run, and managed, and marketing organic gardens, they, have an, well, they finally bought a one-acre garden, a plot of land on the island in the middle of the Columbia River, and the students not only hire, they, they, they do everything from deciding what they're going to grow, where they're going to market it, which farmer's markets, which grocery stores, they decide how much percentage they're going to donate back to their community for the hungry, and whatever they don't sell, right, they decide that. And they set up the protocols for interviewing and hiring their next group of student leaders. And they are training them. So we are talking about complete bottom-up empowerment. And that, my friends, is what I consider to be food justice. Well, I want to thank Anna Maria and Tanya. And uh, if you like that story, you can read it and more like it in Tanya's book, uh, Reclaiming Our Food. Um, 
and it's such a good title, right? Your, this story really illustrates that idea. Okay, so we've heard a little bit about some of the challenges globally. We've heard about some of the policy responses and the politics nationally. We've heard a uh, specific local story uh, taking place in Portland. Um, Cecilia mentioned at the beginning that um, I am on, but really all three of us serve on the university's Sustainable Food Task Force. This is a task force uh, of the overall Committee on Sustainability. It is the first time, um, and we've been up and running for a little over a year, Tanya is leading this effort. It's the first time that faculty, staff, students have come together on a regular basis. We meet every couple of weeks. We have identified some objectives, some metrics um, around the really basic question, what does our UVA food system look like? What is the food that we are serving our students? What are the lessons we are teaching our students about uh, the food that they encounter and the food choices that they make? So the three of us uh, on this panel are working together with our partners at UVA Dining. And as many of you, I'm sure uh, uh, as alumni, you've got fond memories of uh, the UVA dining halls. Um, and let me tell you that uh, our partners at Aramark are, I think, extremely interested. It's a new, this is not your, it's not your father's UVA dining anymore. It's not your UVA dining anymore. Um, this, is, uh, um, th th this is a group of people who are uh, together. We are trying to really first understand and then reimagine what food might be particularly with respect to the three things that we've been talking about so far, environmental sustainability, public health, and food justice. All right, so uh, we can talk perhaps a bit more about the ongoing efforts here at the university, what changes uh, uh, people are trying to, uh, trying to make, but we also want to open things up and get your comments, your questions, your perspectives. So um, we have, I think, a microphone it might be this one, um, to go around. And why don't we open things up to Q&A. Yeah. Yeah. Hello. Thank you very much for presenting today. Everything was incredibly interesting, and I am really grateful to be here. Um, I'm very interested in the idea of food justice, and I went to school in Philadelphia, many um, food deserts there, even though it's a massive city. And... I'm thinking about like all of the disruption that is going on in like Airbnb disrupting the hotel industry and Uber disrupting transport. And so now we have Blue Apron and Plated creating meals and sending them to homes at a cost. And I'm wondering if you see potential there for increasing food justice if they were to accept SNAP so that people could use food stamps to you know, buy Blue Apron meals, and then it would eliminate, like, time going to grocery stores because they could just get it delivered to their homes. So I'm just, yeah, my question is, how do you see, like, food disruption playing into increasing food justice for people of low-income communities, both r r rural and urban? Yeah, so great question. Love it. Uh, I think for me, the key would be who's deciding, who does it benefit, and who's left out, right? So those are really key questions. And so if the decision is by, say, a community, let's, let's, let's say that um, 
somebody who is trying, if, if a, if a middle-income white person like me is going to try and market it to some refugee or low-income community, right, I, it's not what I would call food justice. If, however, somebody from within their community says, I, gee, you know, this is an opportunity for a business for me, and we have in our, in Charlottesville, we have a thing called the CIC, the Charlottesville Investment Collaborative, I think, but which is helping people who have startup ideas and helps them figure out how to do this business for their neighbors, um, then to me, that is more about food justice. And yes, I think that those kinds of things are actually happening. I do. Let me add to that. I, I love your thinking. And... Um, this is where I, I sit there, and I think um, both Tanya and Paul alluded it to it. You guys are our future. And so your way of thinking outside the box, of being disruptive, is what we need to be able to change our environment. But there are some other sort of lower-cost solutions, like you said, that have come out of community members. So, you know, they've been... Um, Places, um, and I know examples of places up in Canada as well as in North Carolina, where communities have gone to go come together. So it might be a small community of families who live in um, a neighborhood, and they decided to cook together on the weekend. And they basically cook enough food so that everybody can go home with boxed meals for that week. And by cooking together, they're sharing their experiences. It's time for support. And yet, they can go home. So at the end of the day, when you're rushing around, having gone to work, and all of a sudden you're face defeating your family, you have something in the refrigerator to be able to take out. Okay. And then um, the, um, the other example is there are some really exciting entrepreneurs in Charlottesville who have come up with some of these ideas. So one of my areas of expertise is working with pregnant women and women in the postpartum period. Well, there's somebody who's been renting some space out of the PB&J kitchen in Charlottesville who is preparing um, meals for postpartum women so that you can base how many, some, I hear some shaking, yeah, so, which I think is awesome. It's just a great, that's, think about a time when people really need to be having tender, loving care, and those of us have moved away from our families being able to have that replaced placed with that same kind of a program. Those are the kind of things that evolve out of communities which will help solve the problem. Yeah. Other questions? Mm -hmm. Two questions. The first one was a little bit flippant, but it, it said um, moderate alcohol. That's opposed to excessive alcohol yeah. and not as opposed to no. But there isn't a statement that people shouldn't be drinking. That's right. Okay, but isn't, isn't just that, don't drink too much. But isn't that interesting? Yeah, that was one of the things that I have to say um, became a little bit controversial that, um, that I didn't really want to go into because we really didn't change the guidelines from last time, but there is more evidence to actually show that some alcohol consumption is good for us. Um, and unfortunately, in the United States, you can't conduct a study to get adults who are never drinkers to drink and then all of a sudden see what happens. Can you believe that? But you know what? You can do it outside of the United States. Just so my, my more substantive question was, I wanted to make sure that I understood the, the, what, it's, what eventually became the, the guidelines. You, you talked about influences, interpretations, first of all, not an influence, but an interpretation from media and influence, or attempted influence from lobbyists. But so if you're a consumer of the information, and I want to hear. You know, I, I want to understand it. I remember when the guidelines came out. I read them. 
But was there stuff that you didn't get to publish because of, because of influences? I mean, was, was the committee edited by influences that you were concerned about? So the, the committee's report doesn't get edited, okay? So our 500-page report gets handed over to the government officials, and then they have staff that then formulates the policy. So whereas our, guide, um, our report basically says you should consume diets lower in red and processed meats, that did not come out in the dietary guidelines, in the policy. So what's, the, what's your bibliography? <laughs> What's the bibliography? What would you suggest? You know, how, do we, how do we become and stay educated about the real science associated with food? How, do we, how yeah. do we become and stay educated about the real science associated with food? Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, I heard him say that's a great question because, you know, would I expect you to read the 500 page report? No, but there is an executive summary. Yeah. That's <laughs> that only about 10 pages. Yeah. That basically summarizes. Okay, what, it, what, what the committee recommended? Absolutely. Yeah, there is. And that was made public. All of our slides, all of our, you know, we were recorded for every single session. That's all available in the public. All available to the public. Question here. Uh, one of the things that hasn't been mentioned yet is the co chemical contamination in food. And uh, um, as part of this question, I, I would assert that for example, uh, we now know that the glyphosate content in food destroys the gut bacteria, mm -hmm. and the gut bacteria uh, of the of the, uh, uh, the biome of our intestine is needed uh, to protect us against obesity. In other words, it, we can't stay at an appropriate weight unless we we have a healthy gut biome, and we now know that many foods, there's 160 foods that are allowed by the USDA to, have, to be, have glyphosate used on them as a drying agent uh, pre-harvest. And uh, this is especially true with grains, but there are others too. Um, and, uh, and so we, we need to address this, and this is only one part of the, of the total contamination issue. In fact, we need this to be addressed with labeling as much as we need transgenic content or GMO labeling uh, to know what the what the these uh, uh, residues are in our food. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, glyphosate is something that is ubiquitous because where where does one find glyphosate? Roundup, right? So the same thing that is, uh, if you have a garage and a lawn, there is a good chance that you have or have encountered Roundup, um, but there is a 100% uh, chance that if you have eaten, uh, well, there's a 90% chance that if you've eaten corn uh, in the last year, five years, 10 years, you've encountered it because 90% of the corn acres planted in this country are planted with genetically modified uh, 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 forms of, uh, uh, of corn um, and Roundup Ready uh, crops, generally corn and soy in particular, are two of the most common, right? And uh, Roundup is made. 
exactly. Even the even the tiny percentage of corn that we produce to be eaten uh, by humans in its corn form, as opposed to in another uh, some other form, uh, or going into a cow or a car, um, uh, is uh, most likely uh, a GM strain of corn as well. Um, it's convenient if you make a Roundup ready seed and you also make Roundup because this is exactly what Monsanto does. This is a phenomenal from a business point of view, right? It is a phenomenal development from a public health, environmental sustainability, and political point of view. It's a completely different question, and I very much like um, you call our attention to uh, a number of, of uh, connected potential policy responses. One is that we regulate, ban, outlaw, or otherwise discourage the use of particular pro uh, uh, chemicals, processes, products. But the other approach, and they are uh, not uh, mutually exclusive, is transparency, right? Is that we require the, the uh, identification of, of certain substances, the identification of genetically modified um, uh, ingredients. We don't do that now. And that is one of the biggest food fights uh, currently underway. The question of not just the uh, existence of genetically modified uh, food, but the labeling of it. Mm -hmm. And in my view, one of the biggest political blunders of the big food industry has been to fight tooth, tooth and nail efforts to label the food, right? Because if you think that your product is uh, not just fine, but actually beneficial, why not stand behind it? Why not put it on the label? Now, with GM corn, right? When you fight it at every turn, you give the political impression that you've got something to hide and that there's something wrong with this product. Now, there may be, right? But politically, I think we can see this as something that uh, has just been a huge mistake on the part of, uh, of big food. So I, I just want to add a couple of things before I, I hand this over to Anna Maria is, is one, if you want to avoid glyphosate, right, you, the only place you can know that you're not going to get it is, or mostly know, unless there's been, you know, what do you call it, drift in the spray, is organic. It is not allowed in organic um, production, okay? Right, that's what I'm saying, unless it's contaminated, but, but the uh, certification does not allow the use of it, so eat, choose organic. The other thing is in Europe is they also are very much ahead of us on both the labeling and, and also in the banning of certain types of uh, GM foods. So, and so the U.S. industry, food industry, has been very distressed with, with that issue and the inability to export certain... Um, because we, we are there. We are very GM-based. Um, and I think it's for our next nutritional guidelines. Anna Maria, I think it's up to you. I think, I think you, <laughs> you all, you all, next, in the next five-year round, you know, is this a possibility? Could this be raised as around the environmental sustainability? 
Yeah, well, given what they did to us based on just mentioning food sustainability, not even going into, you know, um, how the crops are raised or GMO, I seriously doubt that they're going to let us touch it unless our politics change. Right, and but of course, that was everything that your uh, guideline committee uh, experienced, that was under the Obama administration, right? That's These correct. were Obama appointees. That's, that's yeah. right. But the other thing I want to talk about, just, just to mention slightly, um, is while we are becoming increasingly aware of the importance of the microbiome, I don't think we know definitively yet the connection between the microbiome and certain health conditions. So I think that's still out there for investigation. Well, <laughs> I know, you know, I just, I mean, I know it's one of the things that the committee even wanted to look at was we wanted to look at the importance of the microbiome and what we know about it. And the reality is there's still a lot of um, hypotheticalness about what the bi microbiome contributes to our health um, because there wasn't enough published papers in humans that demonstrates this link. And now remember, our committee got criticized for looking at um, you know, the relationship between um, different types of dietary patterns and health outcomes, and we had randomized trials. I mean, we're nowhere near there for microbiome studies yet. Okay, I think we, we have time for one more and then uh, uh, some comments. So yeah, I um, wanted to get your thoughts on um, you know, I was at a, one of these kinds of seminars yesterday, and we were, it was about entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And a lot of standard entrepreneurship is about scalability. Do we have a business that is scalable? And I guess I have a bit of a hard time jiving that um, with kind of the needs of speaking from a social justice perspective, where so much of it is kind of community-based and understanding the unique needs of community. And how, you know, we've seen, like, you know, we were talking about disruption earlier and how you can really kind of change an entire nation's approach to something like hotels or automobiles or anything like that. But from the perspective of wanting to achieve social justice through entrepreneurship on a large scale, how can you really leverage the learnings from standard entrepreneurship, but perhaps look at them in a slightly different lens to create more of a larger, faster impact um, in, the, in the food space? Holy cow, what a question. <laughs> My mind is spinning, and that is the question that's in front of us. That's what people are, are, are trying to tackle right now, is how to do that. And, and there are all kinds of examples of different projects across the country that are trying to do this in different ways. So whether it's like nuestras, I'm not gonna, I don't have a great um, accent, but I'll, I'll, I'll Nuestras Raices in Holyoke, Massachusetts, which is a, one of the um, highest concentration of Puerto Ricans in our, in our country, um, a project much like the one that I told you about that, that grew into something way beyond the initial idea, um, and has uh, a, a, a series of different types of incubators for people within their Puerto Rican community. So people who want to start, say, uh, a restaurant, there's a restaurant space. People who want to start little, like a little ice cream startup. Um, people who want to become farmers. There's space for them to learn how to become farmers. Um, it's every single project like this across the country that I've seen is, is full of hope, successes and challenges 
right? So there's no magic bullet that I've seen. And what I have seen is that it's whatever's done has to be done at the community level, for the community, by the community, because every community is different and their needs are going to be different. And so I don't think there's a, a template, like the magic template that's going to work. But I think it takes energy, it takes dedication. I know I'm, I may be sounding like I'm spewing out platitudes, but I really mean it. Is it, it takes people coming together at the community level, deciding what is it we need, what, can, what do people want to do, do they want to make dinners? Do they want to have pop-up restaurants? Do they want to have a community garden? How do we solve hunger? How do we solve access for us? And I think that's what it takes. I think that's, that, that, that's absolutely right. But I would just add, I do think that there's a role for the social entrepreneur. I think there's a role for uh, the, the students who we see every semester, right, who really share, I think, the, the, the motivating passion behind your question, which is, look, we've got, we've got this fire in our, well, fire in the belly in, the, in a good way, um, <laughs> not because of the gut biome. Um, <laughs> And, and we want to bring this to bear on some of these uh, pressing questions. And so it's exciting to be doing the kind of yeah. work that we're doing uh, at a time and a place like the University of Virginia where there are so many people paying attention to questions of fostering and encouraging social entrepreneurship. And so I'm really pleased to know that there was a, uh, a, a reunions panel on that, that you went to that. You know, so I'm going to take your question and throw it right back to you and say, go forward, right? Do this. Disrupt. Right or rupt or repair, um, uh, because this is this is ongoing and this is where the action is. The politics of food uh, has everything to do with our food, but it also has everything to do with our politics. And so uh, I think I, I I will predict that you will be hearing much 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 more about food politics uh, as we head into a a period in which we're thinking about a new farm bill, for example, uh, a period in which we're thinking about our relationship as a nation to the rest of the world. Everything that is a political issue on the agenda right now has in some ways the potential to touch our food, right, in ways that contaminate or don't uh, the food uh, that, that, we, that we eat and the food system that we have. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention is there's a, a great book by um, Mark Rampula who um, was one of the first um, developers of coconut water, Zinco. And he basically talks about how, you know, he developed this idea from having, um, you know, lived in Latin America and being in the Peace Corps. Have you read his book? His book is called Low Hanging Fruit. Okay, and he he's basically now going across the country. Um, he lives in California. Went to Duke for his MBA, um, and talks about how we need to be social responsible entrepreneurs in the food industry, and gives the food industry a run for their money by basically because he's a you know a young millionaire, and he's basically um, created this group of other entrepreneurs who are investing in young people who are coming out with better ideas for our food supply. So I think that's the kind of you know, people we want to encourage. That's the kind of people we want to see out there to be able to make a difference. So I think I'll just cap that by saying, I think, um, yes, go forth and rupt and disrupt and, and repair and reclaim. Um, because I think in this day and age where there's so much um, 
uh, ennui, there's, there's, there's dissatisfaction, there's disengagement from the stuff that's happening in our world. And in terms of reclaiming our democratic values, I really believe that it is that food at the community level is one of the places that is the hot spots where democratic values are in play, where our sphere of influence is manageable, and we can make a real difference. And so go forth and, and rupt and disrupt and reclaim and, um, and do these things, because it is, it is, I think, the bedrock of our democracy where it's being reclaimed at this level. Terrific. Well, I want to thank uh, my fellow panelists, and I want to thank all of you for joining us today, and we wish you all the best for the rest of your reunions. And on behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, for, to Anna Maria, Tanya, and Paul, thank you both, for all three of you, sorry, for this really compelling and exciting lecture. So help me thank them. Thank you. Thank you.